doing this morning? Excellent. Good to have you with us. My thing fell apart just as I was putting it down here, just like, okay, I'll just carry this around with me. Um, we are wrapping up our teaching series here this weekend as we've been working our way through. Oh, forget that. Let's just put it right here. There we go. As we uh, wrap up Psalm 23 and uh, life without lack, abounding grace for my eternal blissfulness is what we're talking about here this morning. And so grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along with us. And uh, you'll see part of the intro there. I'll get this figured out here before the service is over. Here we go. That's not going to work. Yes, yes. Okay, here we go. Human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. You see that right there on your notes. Human beings, so if you're an alien, that doesn't, uh, doesn't apply to you. But human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. How we live in the present is inevitably shaped by what we believe about our future. Therefore, therefore, the more heavenly-minded we are, the more earthly good we will be. How many have ever heard the statement before that he's so heavenly-minded he's no earthly good? Anybody? You guys know what I'm talking about there? And I, I grew up hearing that statement, and actually, uh, if they're no earthly good, then they're not really heavenly-minded. Maybe they're just weird, okay? That's their problem. Because if you're truly heavenly-minded, you will be earthly good. And I've got some verses. The whole Bible proves that to be true. But there's some verses you can study as you work through the growing notes this next week. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and then 1 John 3, 1 through 3. They're, they're on your notes. Christians should live as if they had died, gone to heaven, and come back. Can you imagine how that would transform our lives in every way? Let me illustrate this idea for you, this hope, being a hope-based creature. Imagine two people working in very monotonous, mundane, almost meaningless factory kind of job, attaching a widget to a gadget over and over again, day after day, 10 to 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week. And the, and the first one, you promise $12,000 at the end of the year, not much money. And then the second one, you promise $12 million at the end of the year. What, what do you think their daily attitude will be like when you compare the two? It'll be quite different, won't it? I mean, I can't, I can't, you know, only imagine that probably the, the one will probably get to this place in their life. They're like, man, this isn't even worth it. They're underpaying me. I'm overworked. This is crazy. I can't do this. I can't, I can't continue on. They'll probably eventually become full of bitterness and self-pity and hopelessness. But the second one that's getting that $12 million at the end of the year will probably be full of confident, joyful expectation. They can't hardly wait. They're going to be a millionaire 12 times over. They'll be filled with peace, hope, and love. Same circumstance, but different responses because of what they believe about their future. Human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures or hope-shaped creatures. The more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. So this is where we're headed with our study here this morning. We'll do a quick overview of where we've been and then dissect the final phrase of the 23rd Psalm. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What does that mean? That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at that. Let's first pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray once again. So Father God, open our spiritual eyes to see more clearly that this fallen, this present fallen world, that there's more to this present fallen world, that's not all there is, and that soon we as Christians will live with and enjoy you, God, forever, 
in the new city, the new heaven and new earth, where we, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed and restored creation as revealed to us in Revelation 21 and 22. So may these wonderful promises capture our minds and our hearts, making us more heavenly-minded so that we will be more earthly good by freeing us of inordinate anxiety and anger and depression and filling us with courage and compassion and contentment in whatever we may face in life. We pray in Jesus' glorious name. And everyone said, amen. In his book... I shall not want. Robert Ketchum tells about a Sunday school teacher who asked her group of children if any of them could quote the entire 23rd Psalm. I'm kind of curious. I asked you to memorize it. So how many you think could quote the 23rd Psalm? Okay, yep, 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 yep. Wow, that's cool. Many of you. Absolutely good. That's really good. And so she asked her classroom, her children, if any of them could quote the entire 23rd Psalm. And a little four and a half year old girl was among those who raised their hands. And a bit skeptical, the teacher asked if she could really quote the entire Psalm. The little girl came to the podium, faced the class, made a little bow, and said, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. She then bowed again and sat down. Now, she, she may have overlooked a few verses, but that little girl captured David's heart in Psalm 23. There's no doubt about it. See, the idea throughout the psalm is that we are utterly contented. We are utterly contented in the shepherd's care, and there is nothing else that we desire. So let's do a quick uh, review of where we've been in this series. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want a life without lack. So we've kicked this series off on Easter weekend and abounding grace for my dot, 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 whatever, whatever we need, whatever we're up against. And one of the key verses that we, we said that was similar to this verse, Psalm 23, 1, was 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that God is able to make all grace abound to us so that in all things at all times, having all that we need, we will abound in every good thing. And that's the promise of Psalm 23. That's the promise of our good shepherd. And then we continued on with that series he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Abounding grace for my weariness. That was the second weekend of the series. The third weekend we looked at, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Abounding grace for my indecisiveness. And then... Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me, abounding grace for my fearfulness. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, abounding grace for my waywardness. And we spent a considerable amount of time really looking at the providence of God in that teaching. And then you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, abounding grace for my brokenness. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, abounding grace for my neediness. We looked at that last weekend. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, David ends this psalm with, with a crescendo by saying, the best is yet to come. We are going to heaven and, and, and our good shepherd saves the best for last, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Abounding grace for my eternal blissfulness. Now, what I did here in this study, and this is typically what I do when I'm studying the, the Bible, and I'll take a verse and I'll begin to meditate on it, think about it, I'll begin to ask questions about each phrase. I, and so I broke it down in phrases you can see there on your notes. And, and really to be heavenly minded is to regularly let your imagination be captured by the truths that we're gonna look at and many more truths in God's word, but to let your imagination be captured by these eternal truths until they ignite your heart and begin to work their way out into your everyday life. And that's what we're gonna do here this morning. I shall dwell. That's the first phrase we're gonna look at. So I shall dwell. What was, what was David saying 
with those three words. Well, I think there's a couple things that, that, that came to mind for me. First thing, he's, he's confident he's going to go to heaven. There's a certainty about that, but there's also a, a longing here. I shall dwell. I shall dwell. So here's your first fill in the blank. It's on your notes. A certainty you're going there. I shall dwell. A certainty you're going there. Now, let me ask you this question. Once you fill in the blanks, uh, fill in that one blank there, once you take a look up here, let me ask you this question. If you were to ask most Americans who believe in God if they're going to heaven, what will they say? Of course, yeah, I'm going to heaven. And then if you were to ask them, follow that up with another question, what makes you think you're going to heaven? What, what, what would make you uh, give you that opportunity to go to heaven? And most of them would say what? Because I'm basically a good person. Now, if you have any idea what the Bible actually teaches, <laughs> there's none of us good enough to go to heaven, okay? You know that, don't you? Most of us, you should know that because we teach that regularly. You can't make it to heaven on your good works. In fact, it tells us in, in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fail to see how desirable and how satisfying God is. And so we tend to live for created things more than the creator, and the Bible says that the wages of that sin is death, is separation from God. That's 623 of Romans. And, and, and so in that, our punishment, eternal separation, fits the crime, which is treason and rebellion. Every sin is cosmic treason. It is rebellion against the rule of the one to whom we owe everything. So sin is, is not just breaking God's laws, but it's, listen to me, it's trampling on his heart. It's, it's thinking you're smarter than God, you're more loving than God, you don't need God. I can do this on my own. We, we're all guilty of that. And the debt we, we owe God is beyond our ability to pay. And so God is a just God. In his justice, God passed the required sentence of death on our sin. But listen to me, it doesn't stop there. He's not just just, but he's merciful. In his mercy, he took that punishment himself on the cross. Amazing love. It's out of this world what he's done for us. And so the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. I never get tired of thinking about that and reflecting on that and talking about that. If you ever get tired of hearing that, then you don't get it. You don't get it. You should be reveling in that daily, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been reconciled to God once and for all. And that's the, that's the good news. I asked my wife this last week if she was certain that she was going to heaven. And I, and I said, considering how you've been acting lately and how you've been treating me. I didn't actually say that, okay. I didn't say that, I didn't say that sec, second part, okay. And, and it's just between us right now, okay. She can't hear us. She's over in the coffee bar. She's working. And so, considering how you've been acting lately, I'm just kind of wondering, are you even going to heaven? No, I, I didn't actually say that. I just said, are you certain you're going to heaven? And she said, uh, she said, absolutely. And then she went on to say, because it's, because it's not based on my goodness. And I was thinking to myself, you got that right. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't even think that, actually. I just now thought that up. But, <laughs> sorry. But... Uh, it's not on my goodness, it's on the goodness of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. He lived the life I should have lived, he died the death I should have died. And what's true of him is true of me because I put my faith in him. And I thought, you go girl, man, you got that down. That's amazing. And so, so we can be certain that we're going to be with him for all eternity if we repent and believe. Listen to these uh, these verses, this is part of the cross-references there on your notes. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you hear what he's saying? So it, it means to believe in the name of the Son. It's not just some general belief, because oftentimes you'll ask people, well, yeah, of course, I believe in God. Everybody believes in God. No, 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 wait, wait. It's more than just some general belief in God. It's believing in the fact that Christ is, is who he said he is, the Son of God who came to this earth, God incarnate, God in the flesh, and he came to do what he said he 
came to do, and that was to rescue us and to redeem us and to reconcile us back to the Father. That's what you believe, and that's what he's saying here. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name, person and work, of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can be certain. Mark 1 Chapter 1, 14 through 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you have to repent and believe in the gospel and who Christ is and what he came to do for you. Now you might be thinking, you know, as, you're, as we're studying, this, this is in the Old Testament. This is David. He's certain he's going to heaven. How was, how was he certain? How did he get saved? Well, Old Testament people get saved just as we get saved. Repent and believe. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, Jesus was nowhere to be found. No, no, the, all of the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. So they looked ahead. We look back. And it's still repent and believe. I've got proof of that. You can just study Romans 4 or Hebrews 11. It actually says that. And so salvation, listen to me, salvation is not a prayer you, you pray in a one-time ceremony and then you move on. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that, that you begin in a moment and you maintain the rest of your life. So what does that look like? Well, our good shepherd tells us what it looks like. John chapter 10, verses three through four, Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd of 23rd Psalm. He said that in John 10. He says, my sheep, this is Jesus speaking, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Are you doing that? Do you hear his voice and are you following him? Have you, are you repenting and believing in him, is he your ultimate meaning, hope, and happiness? Then, then you, you can be certain you're going to heaven. But it's not just this certainty that we can have, and that's what uh, he's talking about here, David's talking about. He's also talking about a longing to be there. A longing to be there. That's your next fill in the blank. A longing to be there. Now, it's our inaccurate thinking about heaven that causes us to think so little of heaven and to long so little for heaven. Gary Larson in his Farside cartoon captured a common misconception of heaven. Um, it is a man with angel wings and a halo, sits on a cloud doing nothing with no, no one nearby. He has the expression of, of someone marooned on a, on a desert island with absolutely nothing to do. And a caption shows his inner thoughts. Wish I'd brought a magazine. And that's oftentimes uh, what people think of heaven. I mean, I, I hear it at funerals from time to time. I hear people say, oh, that person, they got their wings. Or they got their halo or, or something crazy like that. And I'm thinking, what? I don't do it to their face, okay? I don't know, what? I turn my back and go, what? <laughs> I go, you got some bad theology. I mean, that's, that's, it's not... Not very kind to do that at a funeral when people are... But maybe later on I can talk with them and go, they don't get wings in a halo. What are you thinking? That's not Bible. And so anyway, that's, we just have some crazy ideas. Listen, if, listen to this, these verses and see if you can hear Paul's longing for heaven. First, uh, it's Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, that's, that's a good purpose statement right there. For if, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two, whether being here in the flesh or going to be with the Lord. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. To live as Christ, to die as gain, and that is far better. You hear the longing? My wife and I, when we were on our sabbatical this last summer, as we drove out of the fog of the redwoods, which were quite spectacular, the redwoods, and then as we were, we were in a lot of fog on the main road, and we were heading towards the coast, 
and we told that this Trinidad beach was really beautiful as we were driving out of the fog up on the crest of the mountain as you could look down on Trinidad beach. The fog cleared. It was a bright, sunshiny day. And we looked at the beach, and both my wife and I simultaneously went, wow. We just gasped, like, wow, this is unbelievable. We looked at each other. It was like one of these heavenly experiences. We'll never forget it. It was just like, oh, this is amazing. We were like a couple little kids just kind of celebrating the moment. I love what Randy Alcorn, as he's describing this in his book, Heaven, which is really a, a good book, very biblically based in, in a section, a chapter where he talks about picturing heaven. This is what he says. I imagine our first glimpse of heaven will cause us to gasp in amazement and delight. That first gasp will likely be followed by many more as we continually encounter new sights in that endlessly wonderful place. And it will be far better than anything we've seen. Envision the most beautiful place you've ever seen, complete with palm trees and raging rivers and jagged mountains and waterfalls or snowdrifts. Think of friends or family members who loved Jesus and are with him now. Picture them with you, walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than those of an Olympic decathlete. You are laughing and playing and talking and reminiscing. You reach up to a tree to pick an apple or an orange, and you take a bite, and it's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. And now you see someone coming toward you. It's Jesus with a big smile on his face. You fall to your knees in worship. He pulls you up and embraces you. At last, you're with the person you were made for in the place you were made to be. Everywhere you go, there will be new people and places to enjoy, new things to discover. What's, what's that you smell? A feast, a party's ahead, and you're invited. There's exploration and work to be done, and you can't wait to get started. And he kind of ends this section by saying, and I have a biblical basis for all these statements and many more, and he spends the rest of the book kind of just unpacking a lot of that. But, uh, I mean, when you think about what heaven and what, what should come to mind when we think of heaven, though this world is fallen, it is still spectacular in many ways. And if this is the world God gives to his enemies, what kind of world is he going to give to his friends? Oh my goodness. I shall dwell. Here's the next phrase. In the house, or we could say home. I shall dwell in the house or in the home. Now, let me ask you some questions here. Why is it that one of the great curses on Adam and Eve for what they did in the Garden of Eden was that they became homeless. Why was the nation of Israel willing to wander through the wilderness for 40 years homeless so that they all could have homes in the promised land? Why do Americans spend so much time and money looking for and creating that, that perfect home? Why is it that when hurricanes and tornadoes ravage people's homes, they are devastated? Why is it the children who never experience or find a home, a family, a place where they belong grow up carrying a fundamental incapacity for attachment? Why is there nothing more destructive to the human psyche and the human nature than homelessness? So what is a home? It's more than geography, but not less than geography. What's the difference between a house and a home. Turn to the folks next to you and just uh, try to come up with some definitions of what a, what a home is. Do that real quick. Here's my best run at it. 
Let me give you my definition here. It is a place, the setting is beautiful, the sounds of your favorite tunes are invigorating, the smell of delicious home-cooked food permeates the place. It's a place where family and friends meet. It's a place for restful retreats. It's a place of learning and laughing and living. It's a place that is warm and cozy in cold winters and cool and calming in hot summers. It's a place you always feel safe and never feel alone. Home is a place where you are fully known and fully loved. It's a place where family and friends accept you as you are, believe you're valuable, care when you hurt, desire what is best for you, and erase all wrongs because it's a place of healing and forgiveness and reconciliation and love. Here's your next fill in the blank. Heaven is a home of love. Heaven is a home of love beyond your wildest dreams. And I, I love what What Jesus said to his disciples, this is part of the upper room discourse. He's just moments away from hanging on the cross for all mankind. The the disciples are feeling like he's gonna abandon them and they're pretty upset, they're anxious. And so listen to the words that he gives them in uh, John 14, one through three. These are great words. Let not your hearts be troubled. In fact, by the way, they're going to be going through some really heavy, heavy persecution. In fact, all of them will die deaths of martyrdom, except for one, which would be John, and they try to boil him in hot oil. He doesn't die, so they exile him out to the island of Patmos, where he writes, God wasn't finished with him here, and he writes uh, the book of Revelation. And so this is, these are the words that he speaks to them, knowing where they're headed Persecution, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I love those words. They apply to all of us who have put our faith in him. Jesus was giving his disciples a resource of hope that would endure the worst kind of suffering. You see, the early Christians suffered horrible persecution with peace, poise, and singing. Yes, even singing to their deaths because of their solid faith and sound theology of heaven. And in fact, the more they were persecuted, the more they grew in numbers because they demonstrated to the world something the world did not have. You see, this is the home in all the homes you've been looking for. This is the father in all the fathers you've been looking for. This is the family in all the families you've been looking for. Even the best home, father, and family is a gift from God and a pointer to our ultimate home, father, and family. Here's your next fill in the blank. The church is to be the model home of the new neighborhood Jesus is building for eternity. The church is to be the model home for the new neighborhood Jesus is building for eternity. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to those who have put their faith in Christ, repent and believe in him. They've done that. And he says, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So how should we conduct ourselves as the household of God? Well, he tells us that in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Right after he washed the disciples' feet, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Desert Breeze is a place where strangers become friends and friends become what? Did I hear someone say codependent? Uh, Family, family. A local church should be a place where people can come in and see what human flourishing is starting to look like so that they can buy in now before the final judgment. I mean, this shows you how much is at stake in the quality of our lives when we gather together week in and week out in corporate worship and life groups as members of of the household 
of God. When we gather, God wants us to experience a little heaven on earth. How we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we accept one another, a little taste of heaven on earth, our interaction with one another. That's why Desert Breeze matters. That's why we exist. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, that next phrase. I love this. I think this is my favorite part of this. Of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, personal name for God. Now, ancient theologians often spoke of the beatific vision. Let me teach you a new, new word. It's called beatific, or two words. You, you know the word vision. Maybe not the first part of that. Beatific vision. Say that with me. Beatific vision. That's a new word, beatific. Beatific vision. What is that? The term comes from three Latin words that together mean a happy-making sight. The sight they spoke of was God, the beatific vision. Here's your next fill in the blank. We will see God's face. We will see God's face and live, but we will likely wonder if we ever lived before we saw his face. Revelation 22.4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 1 Corinthians 13.12, I love this. For, for now we see in a mirror dimly. They didn't have very good mirrors in those days, okay? They had polished brass kind of mirrors. They, didn't, they couldn't make out all the details. I want to go back to that day with mirrors, okay? How about you? And so he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, listen to this. Check this out. This is good. But then... Face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But then, face to face with our Creator, with our God. Exodus 33, Moses said in verse 18 Show me your glory, show me your face. I want to see your face. And God said, verse 22 No one can see me and live. 1 Timothy 6.16 says God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Hebrews 12.14 says this, without holiness no one can see the Lord. So it is only because we will be fully holy in Christ, completely sinless, that we will be able to see God and live. To see God's face is the most magnificent of all aspirations. Our longing for heaven is, is our longing for God. Every other pleasure will derive from and be secondary to his presence, seeing his face. God's greatest gift to us is and always will be himself. I love the, the quote from Teresa of Avila. She puts it this way, the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. Isn't that great? That's right. Everything you've ever wanted or longed for multiplied exponentially will be present in your heart the first moment of his embrace of you when you see him face to face, the one who was willing to die so that you could be with him in heaven forever. Have you ever, in prayer or Bible study or in corporate worship or during a hike in the mountains or, or a walk on the beach, even for a few moments, have you ever experienced the presence of God? I mean, it can be absolutely overwhelming. You don't even want to meet, leave that moment. It can be absolutely overwhelming, though it can quickly disappear in the distractions of life. But what will it be like to behold God's face and never be distracted by lesser things and only have lesser things consistently point our attention back to him to see his face, the God who created you, who loves you, 
That is amazing. Here's the next fill in the blank. Not only will we see his face, but God will dwell with us fully and freely, and we will see him without end, enjoy him without limits, and praise him without weariness. Eden's greatest attraction was God's presence. Sin's greatest tragedy was the loss of God's presence. His presence came back in a small way, but, but real way in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple, Ezekiel eleven twenty three. It returned in Christ, John 1, 14, and now dwells in us and his people, 1 Corinthians three seventeen. But one day God will dwell among his people. Listen to Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 2 Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We just finished up a great VBS this last weekend, and I got kind of glimpses of it. I was the guy, uh, my, my job was to come in at the end of the day and to greet all the kids as they were coming in for their final session. So I, was, I would stand at that door and just high-five them and say, hey, you made it all right. I just had a blast, but I, I stuck my head in here as they were worshiping, and, and I was, my heart was melted as I saw 100-plus kids just celebrating and enjoying God and singing these songs about Jesus. And I had, uh, I had nine grandchildren here uh, through that. And it was, it was so sweet to see my kids, my grandkids, and then all the kids. It was just, it was overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. My wife and I actually had six of our grandchi- uh, grandkids with us this whole week, this whole last week. And one night we had all nine of them to spend the night. And, and my goodness, I felt like the whole time I was just uh, uh, breaking up fights and cleaning up messes and, and, and wrestling and then running to the store to buy more groceries. And uh, man, thank God they went back to their parents. <laughs> Believe me. But it was a blast. I mean, I mean it, was just, it was really a worship experience in a lot of ways. I'm watching these kids and, 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 the, and what they were learning in, in VBS and hearing about Jesus. And they, would, they came home with these bands and... And even the little three-year-old, I, from three to 12, were, is the ages of, of our grandkids, and the 12-year-old was kind of helping out with that. He, was, he, he, he did good. He did good along with all of them. And, and even our little three-year-old was, was saying, when we were talking about, okay, when life is unfair, he, he, he would say, God is good. God is good. And so that's what they were learning. That was the lesson that they were learning. Uh, you know, the theme of it this last week is that God is good all the time. And so they had these little bands that, that one day would say, when life is unfair, God is good. Or, or when life is sad, God is good. Or when life is scary, God is good. Or when life changes, God is good. And when life is good, God is good. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that is so good that they're learning that. I'm still learning that. Because I know that God is good when life is good. But I tend to forget that when life... When life is unfair or sad or scary or, or changes, I, I, I forget that he's still good. What does that mean, that he's still good? Well, this is what it means. It means that no matter what's going on in our life, he still has our best interest at heart. And that, and that nothing can satisfy you like him. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy you, and there's no amount of suffering that can take that away from you. And that experience of satisfaction in him. And that, and that no matter what's going on in our life, he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. And nothing can separate us from his love. And learning about the goodness of God in all the circumstances of life. Oh, I, I love that. I need that. As he dwells with us and we see him face to face, we will no longer question God's goodness. We'll see it, we'll savor it, we'll enjoy it, we'll declare it to each other, and we will certainly wonder how we ever could have doubted his goodness. 
For then faith will be sight, we will dwell, he will dwell with us, and we will see him. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. And what's the last word? Forever. Yes. That is amazing. John Lennon, one of the Beatles, wrote the song Imagine. How many are familiar with the song? You guys know what I'm talking about? The, the first part of the song goes, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. In other words, what he's saying is that this life is all there is. That's called humanism. It's called secularism. That's really bad theology. That's really bad logic for life. The song is virtually the communist manifesto, a political message sugar-coated in a beautiful melody. Here's what I want to challenge you with. If this world is all there is, It's just one big cosmic accident. We're here by random chance, unlimited time, evolutionary process. Then just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You're just going to become worm food, so what difference does it make? As the 1970s beer commercial says, because you're really, some, a few of you just woke up right there. <laughs> You only go around once in life, so grab for all the... Oh, wow. You guys knew that better than the 23rd Psalm. Grab for all the gusto you can. You have to have been about at least around about 40 to 50 years ago. That was like in the 70s, okay? That was a big commercial here. I mean, that's the philosophy. It's, it's secularism. It's nowism. Live for now. Live for now. Hey, listen to me. Everybody look up here. If we came from insignificance, we're an accident, and we're going to insignificance, have the guts to admit that everything in between is insignificant because that's the truth. That's the reality. If the sun is going to eventually burn out, then it doesn't matter what we do. Anything we do is just a rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic. But I... In fact, if this world is all there is, it doesn't matter whether I live a life of compassion or cruelty. If this life is all there is, why shouldn't I rape the environment to make a million dollars? But I don't believe that, and I'm sure that many of you don't believe that either. Here's the idea here is that if you are here by divine design and will live forever, the question in our mind is how can we live a life that matters how can we live an unwasted life? The more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. So here's, here's how we do it. Here's your next uh, couple fill-in-the-blanks. You will live for God to be most glorified in you as you are most satisfied in Him. That's what you'll do. If you are here by divine design and will live forever, you will live for God to be most glorified in you as you are most satisfied in Him. How do you make Him most glorified in you? By being satisfied in Him. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. You are either living to find your ultimate happiness in temporal things or in eternal things. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Here's your next one. You will face suffering with an inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's presence and providence. That's the definition of contentment that we started this whole series with. And, and you'll have no bitterness or self-pity over the past or complaining about the present or worry and hopelessness about the future. Listen to what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Anybody feel like you're outwardly kind of wasting away? If you're over 35, you are, okay? That's the reality. From the looks of this crowd, it looks like many of you suffer from TMB like me. Too many birthdays, okay? And, uh, and those of you that are below 35, just wait. 
You're going to be feeling and looking just like the rest of us. Sorry. But though outwardly we are wasting away. Listen, he said, don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, we don't put our, our minds, our thoughts, our eyes on the temporal. It is going to go. But we put our eyes, our mind, our hearts on the eternal. That's what we focus on. Because to be heavenly minded is to be earthly good. To be able to endure the difficulties of life. Here's the third one. You will lovingly and sacrificially work to help others find their deepest satisfaction in Christ. Why? Because people last forever either in heaven or hell. And you're going to do all you can to get as many people as you can into heaven and help them to find their deepest satisfaction in him. Let me continue on, continue reading what we, we began reading at the beginning of this sermon. Uh, Philippians 1, 23 through 26, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, notice what he says here, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, for your progress and joy in the faith, joy, satisfaction, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So you got glory and joy. The more we find our satisfaction in God, the more we bring glory to him. And that's what we want to do. We want to help others to do the same. It's, uh, it's been a while since I've uh, used this analogy here. I use it typically in the game of life. If you've never been through the game of life, I'd encourage you to go to it. We'll be offering it uh, real soon. It'll be in September. But it's an analogy or a visual aid that I use typically in the game of life. Someone last night thought that I, was, I had my wife's Tupperware. Don't tell her I've got this. But I had to put my rope in something, and, uh, and someone last night thought it was I, I brought homemade cookies to, to share with everybody. Sorry, no homemade cookies. Just a rope. And this, this rope represents your life. It represents, a, it's a timeline. It's a timeline of, of your life. And, and this was really helpful for me a number of years ago as I, as I used this and I continue to use it. But, but I don't know, can you see the black tape at the, end of the, at the end there? Can you guys see that? Everybody see that? Okay, shake your head yes, whether or not you can see it, okay? Maybe you need glasses. Okay, probably not because it is pretty small. You see the black tape, black tape there? And so at the very beginning of that tape, that's where you were born. You were so cute. <laughs> and, then, and then the mid part is that your life, you grew up and then you lived life and then the, the very end of that tape, that's where you die. You are gonna die. And then you go into eternity, either heaven or hell. And so you got this little short life, you're born, you live, you die, and then you go into eternity, and it goes on forever, and ever, 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 and ever. Listen to me, and you're never coming back. You're never coming back to this part. You'll never return to this. It's over. And you'll be in heaven or hell for all eternity. And, and that's why it says that we read, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. So what we do oftentimes is we, we're very secular and so we tend to spend the first three quarters of our life for that little last quarter. See that little last quarter? That's your retirement. <laughs> not much, huh? You mean to tell me you're gonna spend three quarters of your life for that little bit, that, that? What are you, out of your mind? That's why he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in. You're going to leave all that and you're going to enter into eternity. It's going to last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You're not coming back. You're never coming back. Yeah, for us as believers, we're going, woo hoo hoo Thank God. 
That's why it also says that our light and momentary trials, you see that? This is your life, born, live, die. Our light and momentary trials, I know that they're difficult. I know while you're going through them, they're overwhelming. You wonder if you can even get through them. But the Bible says our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Eternity. I know this, that as believers... This is as close to hell as we will ever be. Praise God. But as an unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus, this is as close, this life, this life is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. Repent and believe in him. Good night. It's a gift. He paid it in full for you. Turn from sin and turn to the Savior. Live your life for him. There's no better way to live your life. Let me end with a, with a story here. Nineteen fifty-two, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off of Catalina. Island determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still she was, uh, but still she swam 15 miles, or for 15 hours, I'm sorry, for 15 hours. And when she begged to be taken out of of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than a half a mile away. And at a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I I pray that as we've worked our way through Psalm 23 and as we've concluded here that the fog has kind of been blown away and you're now beginning to see the shore unlike, unlike ever before. Set your sights on the shore. What is the shore? It's, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when you set your sights on the shore, you need to do that because the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. So we're gonna, we wrap up this series. We kick off a new series next week. It's gonna take us throughout the whole summer. We're gonna do some soul-keeping this, uh, this summer, and we're gonna work our way through Psalms. We spend a considerable amount of time in Psalms, so let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So eternal God, we eagerly await the fullness of your kingdom we long for every tear to be dried. We, we groan for the day when we no longer struggle against sin and suffering. Let the sure hope of everlasting life give us courage and compassion and contentment to face anything in this life. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. And everyone who agrees said, amen. amen. Love you guys.